So uh, it's good to be back with you this week. Last week I was in quarantine. I had to watch worship uh, on the TV. And while I am thankful that we have that opportunity, it's nothing like being in this space with you. Chris was supposed to be here to preach this morning, but he is now in quarantine. So we're just trading it all out. Um, as I know, many of you guys have had uh, COVID recently, and I know we still have a few that are probably at home. So we will continue to pray that it all moves through real quick and we can all just get back to whatever normal is, right? Whatever normal is. So uh, our passage of reading this morning is from Psalms chapter two. And usually uh, we don't necessarily do this, but um, I'm going to ask if we will stand together for the, the reading of this word. <clears throat> Psalms chapter two, the whole chapter. It's not very long. <laughs> Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. And he said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. I will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he'll be angry and your way will lead you to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in the moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You guys can sit. So I want you to picture it. The year is 1953, and it is the most highly anticipated event of almost two years in the making. On June 2nd, 1953, Elizabeth II ascended to the throne of England at the young age of 25. I was not very smart at 25. I can't imagine ruling a whole country, but she did it. The coronation ceremony took 14 months of preparation. As of right now, Queen Elizabeth II is the longest ruling monarch at almost 70 years. See, the coronation of a new monarch is one of the most important ceremonies in the life of England and a lot of other countries that have monarchs. And this particular one was watched by millions of people. In fact, it is estimated that probably 277 million people viewed the coronation of Elizabeth II. It was the first major world event that was televised. And as I understand, it was a crazy feat for it to be televised. Lots of planes having to get the footage from one place, one country to another, so that it could be shown as quickly as possible. And in 1953, boy, was it a feat. The point of a coronation is to publicly install the new king or queen into their role. 
It's filled with traditional meaning and lots of symbolism and to remind the coronated monarch who they are ruling for, what their purpose is, and really, ultimately, who they represent. Beyond a solemn oath that the monarch gives, uh, she also, in this case of Elizabeth, is anointed with oil and then given a few symbols to hold. And we had the a picture a minute ago. They were holding, she was holding this orb. She has these two scepters, one with a cross on it, one with a dove, all these honestly beautiful Christian symbols. Again, as a reminder of her role and her role for the people, who she is to be. Also, in the coronation, there are interestingly tons of biblical readings. There's a reading from 1 Peter, some readings from the Gospel of Matthew, and also some readings from the book of Psalms. Queen Elizabeth is quoted in saying about her coronation, I am sure that this, my coronation, is not the symbol of power and splendor that are gone, but a declaration of hope for the future. And for the many years I may, by God's grace and mercy, be given to reign and serve you as your queen. So the question becomes, why is this important today? Why are we talking about a coronation? What does that have to do with our readings? And why did we stand up? Well, particularly, one of the things you need to know about the book of Psalms is the book of Psalms is a hymn book for the people of God. It was the equivalent of the Methodist hymnal for the Israelites. In it was songs that taught about theology, was uh, ritual sayings and things that were repeated among the crowd and the priest when there was holy days or sacrifices or coronations of a new king. This particular Psalm, chapter 2, is part of one of those coronation readings for the Israelite king. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 of the book of Psalms kind of sum up the whole book. Chapter 1 talks about the law and the faithfulness of God, and chapter 2 talks about the future hope. When a king was installed, it was future hope of what they were going to do to protect the kingdom of God, protect the people of God as the chosen one of God. By the time of this writing, though, one of the things that people and nations had figured out is that during the time of a new installation of a king was probably the most weakest time of a kingdom. When you've lost a king and you're moving in a new king who is young and probably quite inexperienced, it's the perfect time to usurp a throne. Therefore, the words at the front end of Psalm chapter 2, where it talks about these kingdoms who may be conspiring against the Israelite king, God says, no, they conspire in vain because I've got this, because this is my kingdom. This is my king, the one that I have chosen. In verse 6, God says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion my holy hill. It wasn't another human that you chose. It wasn't one who was weak. It is one that I have chosen. But ultimately, he's not the one who leads. It's me. God will determine the king, not another human or a commander with power and authority. The God of all creation has done and will do. You see, other kings had a human king that was flawed The Israelites, they had a king who was perfect. 
Now their figurehead, he wasn't perfect. He had flaws, but he was just a representative. He was just a steward for the people. The one who stood in place to help remind the people of who the real king was. You see, the people had difficulty. And so they clamored for God to give them a human king. Before Saul, there was no king that stood in place for God. God was the king. But the people struggled. They struggled to feel like they were connected to God as their king. Ultimately, they said, we just don't think you're enough. You're hard to relate to. You're hard to connect with. We need, we need someone we can look at, someone we can see, someone we can talk to, can talk back to us. And so God said, okay. So he allowed the people to choose a king and he, they chose Saul. Well, that didn't go very well. So then God chose David. David, this man who loved God and understood God in a way that was just deep. He had passion and he had conviction and there was no way that he was perfect but he definitely understood about seeking forgiveness and knowing that he had redemption. So David stood in the place and he represented God to the people. And he said, I'm really the one who's supposed to stand here and show you what it looks like to follow God, the one enthroned in heaven. I really don't have any power or authority unless it's given to me by God. I just stand here and I show you what it looks like to follow him. I show you what it looks like to worship him and I show you what it looks like when you mess up to seek him. But eventually, David passed away and there were other kings in his place. And those kings, well, they had struggles. They kind of enjoyed the power and authority. They wanted to rule and not listen to God. And so the kingship kind of started to fall apart in the human form. But that never changed that God was still the king of his people. So what's that have to do with now? What's that have to do with this New Testament readings that we've been doing? What does it have to do with Jesus? Well, if this psalm is a coronation psalm about the king, who God has placed in his divine choosing, Then when we get to verse seven and God speaks these words that echo so many years later, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In the New Testament, when we turn from that reading to Mark chapter one, when Jesus comes to John the Baptist and he asks to be baptized when he's coming up out of the water and the heavens open and the voice of God speaks And he says, you are my beloved son. Today, today, I am well pleased with you. Everyone in attendance, all of these people who had come to see John and had also seen Jesus be baptized, they know this psalm. They know that this is a psalm that is repeated over and over when it's time to be a, have a king enthroned for the Israelites. And they've been waiting for the king. They've been waiting for the anointed one, for the Messiah that was promised to save them. And so they hear this psalm too. And they say, if, the, if God has spoken and said these words, this is our king. He's come Finally. All that we've been waiting for finally has come. 
And the declaration of God to his son takes a whole new meaning. See, before you were just adopted in if you became the king. You were anointed and then called the son of God as the king. This now is the actual son of God. The son of God to the father who has come to sit on the throne, who has come to declare that God still in the heavens is still on the throne. He never left you. He never forgot you. He didn't ignore you. He has always been preparing for this moment. Because God's kingdom has never been forgotten. Because God continues and wants to continue to reign. Because God loves his people. And so he sent his son. The king of kings and the Lord of lords will gain victory and rule the nations. Specifically, what the people of God think is the nation of Rome. Rome needs to be decimated because Rome has been oppressing them with the rod of iron. But this Jesus, how does this king reign when he wears a crown of thorns? And the first major time that he is declared to be the king of the Israelites is by a sign nailed to a cross that he's also nailed to. The sign of death. How can this be the king? Patrick Miller, uh, a commentator, put it this way. I thought these words were amazing. He says, the kingship of Jesus turns out not to be like any human kingship. He doesn't manifest his rule on earthly power and glory, but in the giving of himself on behalf of a sinful and suffering humanity. His power over the world is precisely his powerlessness before the world. The laughter and anger of God that seems to be a strange shape of tears. As he took all that the world could give, He died on its behalf and broke the power of anyone or anything else that would claim total control over their lives. He was unexpected. This guy doesn't seem to be the one that brings so much hope. When there's a new king installed, there's hope and excitement. Just as Queen Elizabeth said that hopefully this is hope for the future. This doesn't feel like hope to the people of God. And yet, They heard this enthronement praise, this psalm that spoke of what God is planning to do, that God will take care of his people. The people of the way of the movement that happens after Jesus' death and resurrection and then his ascension, they go back to this psalm passage over and over and over again. In fact, this psalm passage is quoted more than any other psalm passage in the New Testament. Because the people of God and us need to be reminded that God is our king. We don't live in a monarchy. We don't live over in England. The United States, kind of that whole idea is somewhat foreign to us. But it doesn't change the fact that no matter what, if you declare yourself as a person of God, if you declare yourself a believer in Christ, you are now a part of the kingdom of God. A kingdom that is outside of the craziness of this world. The kingdom that that reminds us that God is the head and God has a plan and God is so much bigger than all this stuff. 
we have a ruler and we submit to that ruler. And that may be uncomfortable for us to think about. I think one of the things that I struggle with by far the most is giving up my own control. I like my own control. I like to be able to make my own decisions. I like to know how the parts are moving, sometimes maybe a little bit too much. Probably my kids would say way too much. But the control is God's. The control is our king in heaven. The control is submission to him and to his authority, to his sovereignty, to his goodness and his grace. The God who lives in heaven, who sits on the throne is a God who has mercy. Is a God who has judgment and we hate that one, but judgment is so good. Judgment allows us to see where we have failed so that we can then correct and feel grace again. Jesus came to be able to continue to establish the kingdom and remind the people that the kingdom has come for us. In Acts chapter 13, Paul is preaching to a crowd and he says, and though they found in him no guilt, Jesus, they found him worthy of death. They asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. In many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers, that he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also written in the Psalm chapter two, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Let it be known to you, to us, therefore, brothers and sisters, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by, every, by him, everyone who believes is freed. Psalm chapter two is the coronation, the declaration of a king. But ultimately, God is the king. And God is asking us today, to be people of his kingdom, to declare his kingdom to others, to live out his kingdom in a holy way. Just today, not tomorrow, we'll worry about that when it gets here, but today, to recognize Jesus as sovereign, to know that God is ruling over the nations and ruling over our lives with everlasting love. Jesus came and declared that he was the chosen one and then he lived and then he died for us so that he can reign forevermore in our hearts and in this world. See, there's a battle and we don't like to think about it too much, but there's a battle and God's kingdom is continuing to come. We lived in the already, and I know we've talked about it before, but we're also in the not yet. The not yet of God's kingdom, it's going to come. Full salvation, full redemption, grace. And there are a lot of people who don't know about the kingdom of God. And they don't know about the God who is enthroned in heaven and is calling their name. And he's asking us, Will you be one of the ones who goes and reaches for them? 
Will you declare who I am to the nations? Let's pray. Father God, you are our king. A lot of times when we pray, it's probably a whole lot easier and more comfortable to think of you as our father, that intimate relationship. And yet we also have to recognize that your lordship is intimate. You as the king desire for your people to be blessed and loved. For us to declare who you are with joy You want your kingdom to reign in glory. And you ask your people, God, to declare you king of our hearts, Lord of our lives. And so today I pray that that's what we will do. With our voices, with our hearts, with our hands, with our whole selves, God, you are king of all. We love and we praise you, God. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Trinity Podcast. To find out more about Trinity, visit us online at www.trinityreston.org.